0: Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Before we had to deal with the COVID-19 virus pandemic, there was already another national health crisis. That crisis has become so much more worse by the pandemic. That ongoing and advancing crisis is the one caused by opioid addiction. The United States Department of Health and Human Services declared an opioid epidemic in 2017. Even though that epidemic increased because of the COVID-19 pandemic, attention to it got set aside. Now it is time to turn our awareness and attention back to this serious and expanding disease. As it was with helping us understand the crisis with HIV in Episode 16 of this podcast, There are few people better able to help us understand the opioid epidemic than Wayne Smith. Wayne is founder and director of Samaritan Ministries in Knoxville, Tennessee, and has since 1996 been on the front lines of working with and for people with or affected in some way by the diseases of HIV, hepatitis C, and opioid addiction. He provides us with extensive information and insight, and deep wisdom born from his efforts. Well, welcome, Wayne. Thank you for being with me. Good to be with you, Dave. So you have uh, extended your ministry uh, beyond HIV uh, to opioids. And so uh, as we talk about that this evening, uh, let's kind of begin with kind of talking about what is an opioid.
1: Uh, It's great to be with you, David, and thanks for giving me this opportunity to talk about my my newest favorite topic, so um, we'll dive right in. Um, Opioids are substances that generally are used to treat pain, and they attach to, um, the best example is morphine, the common example is morphine. They attach to to receptors in the brain to reduce uh, anxiety. They can reduce pain as well. And so that's what an opioid is. The common opioids that we think about are um, uh, the natural ones are made from or uh, made from opium opium poppy, and then they're synthetic or um, drugs like hydrocodone, oxycodone, and fentanyl, which are the ones that seem to be causing the most the most trouble right now, and are responsible for most of the drug overdoses. Okay.
0: Uh, and I noticed that, uh, heroin is connected with it, uh, and,
1: and, and, meth- and methamphetamines are not, are not, uh, opiates, but they also are certainly a part of this, um, overdose process. I think that, um, heroin probably represents about 20% of the, the total opioid or total overdose deaths, uh, with, with, um. Uh, Meth and ecstasy, counting for a small portion, but opioids the major portion. Okay. Um, So why have you all uh,
0: branched out? Why have you extended your ministry from HIV uh, to also include opioid crisis? In
1: 2015, there was a really bad... Uh, outbreak of HIV in, in a small community in Indiana. And um, it was very dramatic in a, in a small county that would normally have three or four cases of HIV in a year. Um, this county experienced, in, in, a, in a little over 15 months, I think, about uh, 250 new HIV cases. My goodness. Yes, it was dramatic and unprecedented. And uh, when public health officials do what they do so well in an outbreak of disease, they they get personnel in there and they start investigating and looking at what's going on. And what they discovered was that this outbreak of HIV was tied to injection drug use. So we had a community where there was uh, a lot of Needle sharing, a lot of intergenerational uh, uh, misuse of, of of drugs, using uh, syringes, and um, and boom, you know this this big outbreak. As a as a result of that, many people began to take a look at what is it about the demographics of this county in Indiana that might cause this kind of an outbreak to happen in other places. And so the CD looked at the idea of of what makes this particular area vulnerable to an outbreak of HIV or hepatitis C. And so uh, they identified 220 or so counties across the country that fit this particular set of demographics. And many of those counties are in East Tennessee, uh, uh, Eastern Kentucky. West Virginia, uh, Western North Carolina. Um, There's just a bunch of these counties in there. They're largely white, lots of um, poverty, uh, history of injection drug use, intergenerational injection drug use, high rates of hepatitis C. Um, And so the connection began to dawn on me and those around me that we really need to pay attention to these other things as we pay attention to what's happening with HIV, because they're interrelated, and there, there's actually a term that's been uh, I, I've not heard it before, but it's kind of it's new to me, and that term is syndemic. So a syndemic uh, uh, is it describes a group of epidemics that are not only happening at the same time, but have interaction with each other and and exacerbate the other epidemic. So we have, we have a syndemic of HIV, hepatitis C, and uh, opioid misuse that, that are acting together to cause a public health crisis or make a public health crisis more, um, more severe. So, so we decided uh, the first step we took was to get into hepatitis C testing because we knew that uh, when we uncovered people who were living with hepatitis C, there was a chance that they might be uh, getting, a good chance they might be getting hepatitis C from injection drug use. And if that was the case, HIV couldn't be far behind or could be far, be- could be close behind. And so that was our initial step into that sort of expansion, as you called it, of our ministry. Okay.
0: Well, the um, Center for Disease Control um talked about the fact that before the pandemic uh opioids was a crisis it was its own crisis um and we'll talk more about what the pandemic has has brought to that but prior to that it said that uh um you know going into the pandemic it was already a crisis and, and it talked about three phases in which that became a crisis. Uh, can you speak to that?
1: Sure, I can. I'd be glad to do that. So in the 1990s, there was this increase in prescription drugs in general across the country. Uh, and uh, deaths included prescription opioids. Uh, and that was the first phase, the first wave of this epidemic. So the 1990s. Connected to natural and synthetic or semi synthetic opioids uh, and also methadone, which is, you which is a, 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 an opioid and uh, So you're talking about fentanyl, oxycodone, hydrocodone, those kind of drugs so that was the first wave it was connected directly to these opioids and uh, And overdose deaths directly connected to that that was the first phase so the second wave um, began in 2010, and I'm, I i think that I'm right about this. I think when the government began to clamp down a little bit on, on the prescriptions and how they're made, that uh, uh, many people went to heroin because it was cheaper at that point to go to heroin. So the second phase, second wave of this began in 2010 with overdose deaths increasing among those people using heroin. And that, again, like I said a few minutes ago, that today represents about 20% of the total uh, numbers of overdose deaths. And then the third wave began around 2013, and this uh, also involved uh, synthetic opioids. But the, the, the one that really came to the forefront and really began to uh, wreak havoc was fentanyl. Um, and so that really changed. The whole dynamic and i think the in large part that's because it just takes so little fentanyl to do damage and uh so those are those those are the three phases so the first was just uh, synthetic opioids and uh, natural and synthetic opioids and then the second phase was the introduction of heroin or the increase of heroin and then that third phase was was when fentanyl came along okay
0: but, I also understand that um, it had something to do with the fact that the pharmaceuticals kept reassuring the medical community that people wouldn't be addicted to this drug.
1: You know uh, you know, I, I need to say I'm not a doctor, right? You know that about me, and I'm certainly not a lawyer. so um, but my understanding about this is that there there are. There are a lot of reasons that this happened. It's real easy to blame um, pharmaceutical companies for manufacturing drugs that they knew were going to be addictive. And uh, they touted, the, they touted the, the, good, the good things about these drugs and fighting pain and, and hid what they knew. Uh, and we, we've seen evidence of that in court. And um, so that's real. It's not imagined. That's real. But the other part of this is, um, you know, doctors writing, uh, overriding prescriptions. Uh, we had a presentation at our church last night uh, from a, a young woman who trains in the use of Narcan, the, the uh, medication that can reverse an overdose. And, um, you know, she talked about the fact that uh, how many prescriptions are written in the United States and she 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 dove down into what's going on in Tennessee, my home state, and in our in our local county. And it's incredible the numbers of prescriptions that have been written, uh, and for how so many pills, not really knowing what the need was. And so there there's there's blame to go around. And then in, I'm sure you'll want to talk a little bit about stigma too during this during this conversation. But you know we got this. This whole thing about you know not wanting to talk about any of this, um, hiding about hiding this, and shaming people who are uh, victims of, of this crisis, um, who are caught up in uh, opioid addiction. Um, so those are all factors, but there's certainly some blame to lay uh, at the at the at the foot of the at the feet of the drug manufacturing industry.
0: Um, in some of the guests that you all have had at Central Baptist Bearden uh, in which you have interviewed them uh, relating to this, uh, there's a full spectrum of uh, people that have this. And so kind of what are some of the statistics uh, that we're talking about? Uh, how many people are experiencing problems and uh, dealing with this issue
1: well we've been we've been hitting in terms of uh, uh, overdose deaths in this country uh, in 2019 around uh, 70,000 overdose deaths in this country um, and you know that's just an incredible incredible number we have more people die from opioid overdose, overdose in this country than in car accidents. Mm. Um, mm. And the numbers, David, have just increased and continue to increase and continue to increase. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the most significant things I can say is that we're just seeing um, tremendous numbers of, of overdose deaths. And they span all demographic groups, all socioeconomic groups, we see this happening. Uh, Our church is kind of a middle class, mostly white church. Um, We've had uh, several overdose deaths in our church family. And so, you know, we, we can't put this on the poor or, you know, a certain race or whatever. This is something that cuts across all of those demographics. And it really is just important to to recognize it and talk about it, which I think is one of the, one of the things, one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about it, uh, in a, in a church community.
0: Well, you had mentioned that, that it's related to pain relief and, um, one of the CDC, uh, no, I guess it was the health and human service, uh, statistic was that, um, that's the leading reason why people get addicted is that they begin using while they're in pain. Uh, and then it kind of extends on,
1: uh, beyond that. We hear so many stories of people who had surgery, minor surgery sometimes and got a prescription for pain pills. And, uh, and that's, that was the beginning of this. Um, and so, um, you know, what I was in, I was in the hospital with one of my clients that I work with, uh, in my HIV work and she'd had minor surgery and she got a prescription for, um, uh, 30 oxycodone when she was getting ready to leave and she didn't ask for, she didn't ask for him. And when the, when the, uh, nurse, the exit nurse was handing her the prescription, she said, what's this for? And he told her, and she said, I don't need that. I've got, I've got some at home that from, from another prescription I had, I don't need that. And he just insisted that she take it. And so um, it, it, it is the beginning in many, many, many cases. And the other statistics is kind of frightening. And um, one of the reasons that we highlighted as a part of our church uh, effort, the Deterra, and that's a brand name, D-E-T-E-R-R-A, Deterra um, pouches, which uh, deactivate drugs so you can take uh, unused medications in your home and put them in this pouch, add a little bit of water, and it completely deactivates whatever drugs you put in there so they can't harm the environment, they can't be used again, and you can just throw it in in the uh, trash at home. So that was another step that we took because we hear that between 50 and 70 percent of the drug overdose deaths in this country came from medication that was in the house okay uh, that somebody got prescription for because they had pain and it's unused and it's in the house and it falls in falls into the hands of our kids our grandkids our friends um and so you know th- that's also related to why it's important to talk about this one of the interviews you had was uh with a medical doctor
0: uh and that he uh, practiced for years while himself uh, taking uh, large quantities
1: uh, of the drug. This is Dr. Steve Lloyd, and he practiced at East Tennessee State University Medical Center um, and has become a, uh, an, active, an activist uh, for treatment and works today in helping people get into recovery and treatment. But yeah, he was practicing physician, doing his work, um, was was kind of stressed out and, and overwrought and couldn't keep up and was working long hours. And he had gotten some hydrocodones from his dentist from dental surgery. And they were in the glove compartment of his car. And one day on the way home, he decided maybe that would help him get through. And it started him on a, Long journey of serious opioid addiction. Um, it's a miracle he didn't lose his life or cost other people theirs. Um, so uh, he was taking an incredible number of pills a day, hundreds of pills a day, and still practicing medicine and still going on about his life. and nobody knew, nobody knew that he was that this problem was going on.
0: And and is that common that that people are able kind of to function uh, with this addiction? I mean, like you know, with alcohol, people are, you know, they're impaired, <laughs> or somebody's high, uh, you know, you can tell. Uh, but but apparently with this, it's not the case.
1: You know, I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. I certainly do know of of people who have had um, opioid. Uh, um, pill problems and misuse problems and alcohol too is by the way who uh, go through their day and function pretty well and are able to do their job and work and and keep it keep it hidden Uh, people be people become pretty good at keeping these things hidden and of course for the doctor he was uh wiser in the ways of obtaining medications and how to go about that and so um i think he probably had a step up on uh, keeping things hidden
0: well, he talked about what it does to your brain. Kind of go into that a little bit, what
1: it, what this, what this disease does to you. Well, one of the things we need to say and probably should have already said this is we need to remember that, uh, that addiction is a disease and it's not some kind of a moral failure on the part of the person who's dealing with addiction. We really do need to rem- remind ourselves of that and talk about that. So I heard Stephen Lloyd speak a few years ago at a symposium that was put on at the University of Tennessee. And uh, he used slides to illustrate this. And this was just amazing to me. And so what he what he shared with us is what happens to the brain when when somebody is misusing uh, opioids. And um what happens is the, the, the frontal lobe of the brain that, that allows us to make judgments and, and have empathy and uh, think about other people and all those, uh, uh, make decisions, the frontal lobe of our brain becomes uh, less active. And in severe addiction, it becomes uh, dormant just about. And so we're, our, our lives are being run by the back part of our brain back here that just controls our survival. And so a person that's in that kind of a setting with their brain will only make decisions about survival, and that for them is going to mean getting the next uh, set of drugs that they need to to stay, uh, to, not, to not go into detox, to not get sick. And so it's why... It's why we hear people abandoning their families and not taking care of their children and making choices that we think are just insane to get uh, the drugs that they would like to have, Um, but it's because their brain is not functioning well. And so the other part of this that he talked about was when a person goes into treatment, um, that it takes a long time for this brain activity to get reestablished. And the examples he gave were, and he showed slides of the brain lit up with, I guess, a PET scan um, that after about a, uh, you know, a 24-hour detox or a a three or four-day detox, a person goes through that. They they get sick and they manage their way through detox and they get out on the street again or back home again or in their community again and there's been no change in their brain. So they're still not able to make good decisions. They're still not able to, to deal with day-to-day living. All they know is what's back here in the back of their brain telling them what they need to do next to get high. And, it's, and he gave an example of an airline pilot and a physician. And he said, now, these people, when they get into a, uh, an, an addiction problem that becomes identified, they get help. They get real good help. They get help that's paid for by their employer. They get help that's long-term, and in many cases, 90 days or longer in a recovery program. And then he showed us slides of the brain after a 90 90 days clean, and we have the frontal lobe working again. So it's why we have this disparity when it comes to access to treatment that really needs to be addressed because people without insurance, people without support, people with minimal um, financial resources are gonna get the short end of the recovery stick and not be able to get into those long-term recovery programs which are gonna make all the difference. And so we need to address this in our communities. Now, one of the things that's happening at the Metro Drug Coalition, the group that helped us put on our program at our church um, is that they're really trying to work to connect uh, people of low income and people who have uh, health insurance issues with those long, longer-term resources so they can have a better chance of, of having a c- successful recovery because they get their brain back. It was a fascinating, fascinating presentation.
0: Um, your interview with Jason Goodman. Uh, Mm -hmm. he talked about that he had been in, uh, treatment several times and that each time he hadn't followed through all the way. Uh, and it wasn't until he, until he did that until he kind of followed through that he was able to recover.
1: That was a great interview. And by the way, I think uh, you may be posting that it is on our website and encourage anybody who's interested in recovery. Um, because of their own story or because of a friend or family member's great interview, great way to learn about uh, what what are the pieces, uh, all the pieces of recovery. But, but Jason talked very well about um, that relapse is a part of this process and that it many times it takes people several times to get to the place where they're willing or able uh, or they have the support to really make recovery into a long-term success. Um, And and he said, you know, how many times are we supposed to, uh, are we supposed to help somebody? You know, that's the question. You know, family members ask us, how many times are we supposed to help? Um, How many times should a person uh, recover from an overdose with Narcan before we say no more? And uh, Jason said, you know, if it's your family member, you want him to get Narcan every time they have an overdose. And he talked about the uh, the Bible verse uh, Matthew eight, uh, Matthew eighteen. Uh, how often shall my brother sin sin against me, and I forgive him? And uh, Jason said, you know, it's not it's not one time or five times or seven times. It's seventy times seven was how Jesus responded. So we really do need to stick with this long haul and uh, help people get to the place where they're going to be able to make it successful. It's not easy.
0: Well, you talked about uh, in your interview with Jason um, that because people are different, uh, it takes multiple approaches, uh, multiple paths to recovery, uh, but that you group those into two kind of broad
1: categories. Uh, What are those? Well, I wasn't sure I was on the right track, but Jason kind of confirmed that. And so most of us are familiar with recovery from the abstinence kind of standpoint. So uh, somebody, you know, goes through detox and gets off their drugs, and then they get support for that through uh, a program that's sort of a 12-step model. So uh, that could be uh, celebrate recovery. Um, there, are, there are many approaches. Twelve step uh, uh, programs like uh, Alcohol Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. They they work great for a lot of people, and so most of the time when we th- when we when most of us think about recovery, that's what we think about. Um, there, there has always been another route, which is the medicated assisted. Uh, therapy or treatment, M-A-T is what that's called. And the most common one that most of us know about is methadone uh, treatment. And, you know, that's methadone treatment has gotten a bad rap and much of that has been um, justified because there are methadone clinics and there have been methadone clinics over the years that really don't deal with the whole person, don't deal with the the support and counseling that is really needed with medicated-assisted therapy to get a person, number one, off harmful opioids and onto a medication that's going to reduce their urge, uh, keep them stable, keep them from getting sick, so they can plow through that recovery process. There are many drugs now that are on the market that are used for, for MAT. And as Jason said in the interview, it's becoming where I hear more and more people who are more knowledgeable about this than I am say that medicated-assisted therapy is the gold standard. And Jason's point was this, that everybody's different, and people who are uh, going through a problem with addiction uh, uh, need to be given the opportunity to select, to look at, to find a recovery path that's going to work for them. And we can't let our preconceived notions about one's better than the other. Um, well, I did it this way or, or I've heard bad things about this way. Uh, you know, We have to let the options be on the table. And, and uh, people who work in recovery that are, that are sound and solid about it, uh, like Jason, uh, will, will talk with people about all of the options that are available And help people figure out maybe what's going to work best for them, and then support them in that decision all the way through. All the way through. We don't want to say, "Oh, if you choose that path, then we're not going to help you." And I'm afraid that sometimes that's the response of some well-meaning, well-meaning supporters who don't really understand medicated assisted therapy, and would say, "Well, you know." We're not going to talk about that. We don't talk about that in our program. And if you're going to go that route, then you're not, you can't be in our program. And that's, that's not the right approach. Well, the uh, Health and Human Services uh, article mentioned
0: uh, a medication, uh, naloxone,
1: naloxone, 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 naloxone. Now, naloxone is what I called a Narcan just a few minutes ago. So Narcan and Naloxone are the same uh, medication. Narcan is a, a brand name and Naloxone is the, uh, uh, the common name. Um, so this drug, Naloxone or Narcan, is a, drug that will re- is a drug that can be used to reduce an opioid overdose. And it's, uh, it's an amazing drug. It's, it's amazing how it works. It's amazing how effective it is. And one of the things that we, that we uh, did the final night of our uh, series at church was did a training so that people in our church and people who were listening via live stream could go through this training and then get their own kit, their own uh, naloxone or Narcan kit. Narcan is a nasal spray version of this. Um, and it's amazing. And we really need to have it in our possession We need to have it if we have a family member that maybe struggles with uh, drug misuse. But there are lots of times when people are out in public and someone um, goes into an overdose situation uh, in a grocery store or in a park or someplace where, where a passerby could save a life if they had Narcan in their backpack, which is where which is where I keep mine. So um, I talked a little bit earlier about how opioids work. Opioids will uh, will attach themselves to receptors in the brain that control breathing. And so when a person, when all of these receptors are are clogged up with an opioid, then breathing stops. And this is when a person goes into... Uh, an overdose situation, they, they can't breathe. they don't breathe. And the the weird thing about the opioid molecule is it fits exactly right into this receptor tight. makes a great match. so it can effectively stop respiration. Now, what naloxone does is naloxone also fits on this receptor just right, and it's more powerful, then opioid in attaching to the receptor. So when a person is in an overdose situation and they have the opportunity to get naloxone or Narcan, the, the naloxone will, will uh, attach to the receptors, push the opioid off the receptor, and allow breathing to, to, uh, to happen again. And the, the naloxone doesn't do any harm. All it does is push the opioid out of the way. So a person can start breathing again, and it can buy between thirty to ninety minutes while someone's called nine one one and we get first responders there to deal with that to deal with that person. So that's that drug naloxone that you read about,
0: and it's only an emergency situation. Then it's a, it's not like part of the long term medication. It is not it.
1: it- it is for someone who has truly gone unconscious, and is uh, truly uh, on the on the edge of death because their breathing is either stopped or it's getting ready to stop, and so it is for that for that person who is actually in an overdose situation. They're they're unconscious, and that's when this uh, that's when naloxone is used.
0: Well, both Stephen Lloyd and uh, Jason Goodman talked about. Uh wraparound services that need to accompany whatever treatment path a person chooses. What are those
1: services? Addiction, addiction's complicated, and dependence on drugs or alcohol is complicated. And so getting getting out of that setting and getting away from that dependence is also complicated. And uh very few people that uh, and again I'm I, I say this as a person who's learned along with what you've done learning David I I'm, um, I'm, I'm not an expert and I'm certainly not a physician but people make it through tough times when they have support I think we, we know that that's the case um, and so wraparound services can include can include counseling uh, sober living um, uh, medicated assisted therapy, um, support groups, um, family members who go and uh, and sit in on support groups as well, so they can support their their uh, their family member. Um, it's about bringing to the table all of the uh, support that a person needs to be successful in recovery. Um, so. Um, One of the things that Jessica, who uh, did the the naloxone training for us last night, talked about was that her previous job was working at a hospital as a a peer support counselor because she has been through an overdose and has recovered and is alive today because somebody gave her uh, naloxone. So her previous job was to visit in hospital rooms, with people who had done the same thing so she could be a peer counselor and truly be able to say to somebody, you know, I know what you're going through uh, because she does and she has been through that. So peer support uh, is a, is a part of that, that wraparound, but we just can't, we can't give people a, 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 you know, a short term recovery uh, and say, you know, have a nice day. Hope this works for you. Uh, people need more than that to be successful in recovery. And that I think is a point that Jason made really well.
0: Well, the CCEC article uh talked about things that the Center for Drug Control is is uh doing or disease control excuse me is doing. Uh and there was there was a list of them. Um the effort at um uh, timelier tracking of non-fatal and fatal drug overdoses uh, improving toxicology uh, to better track polysubstance involved deaths uh, enhancing linkage to care for people with opioid use disorder and risk for opioid overdose uh, improving prescription drug monitoring programs uh, implementing health system interventions partnering with public safety increasing public awareness and implementing other innovative surveillance and prevention activities. So where do you in Samaritan ministries, how many of those do you do is a part of what Samaritan ministries is doing. Kind of talk about what, how you all are engaging this.
1: Okay. Well, there are some things that we, we don't do. We don't do because we're not, we don't have the capability. Things like, uh, Improving toxicology and and uh, tracking uh, overdoses and things like that. But I will tell you this: that there's an increased effort on the part of many partners in our communities, law enforcement, the medical community, uh, the the uh, the treatment uh, arm, not for profits, to better track and know what's going on, so we can deal with what's happening. So, and a lot of that work happens through coalitions. So I sit on a I sit on a coalition with community partners. And when I'm sitting at, in that coalition, uh, one of the people that's there is the coroner, is there, because he wants to tell everybody the stance and what's going on in our community. Uh, so it is important for the community to work together to uh, to try to uncover some of those things. Um, the things that we directly work on. Um, you talked about enhancing linkage to care for people with opioid use disorder. One of the first things that we did uh, was start doing hepatitis C testing um, back in 20—I'm um, not sure—2013, I think, is when we started that. And one of the things that you do when you do testing, like HIV testing or hepatitis C testing, is you find out from the person why they want to get a test. And what, what kind of uh, events would be going on in their life that might make them vulnerable to having hepatitis C? And one of the obvious ones uh, for hepatitis C is, is a history of injection drug use. And so when we begin to in, engage with people who have hep C or who want to get tested for hep C, oftentimes that uh, knowledge about uh, a history of injection drug use leads to a diagnosis of hep C, which leads to medical care and medical support and other wraparound services. So we quickly found that being a part of that, maybe that first step in running uh, an initial antibody test for hep C was really a a doorway for a lot of people into uh, making contact with other people in our community who can provide that kind of support. We also have been an advocate for the syringe exchange program that operates in Knoxville. Um, Syringe exchange is another one of those things that, you know, people, you know, know, hear about you're going to give people clean needles. That's going to make the problem worse. What are you doing that for? And uh, there's all kinds of statistics that have been gathered about uh, the benefits of syringe exchange and public health benefits getting dirty needles off the streets. But the big one is engaging people who are in the throes of an injection drug use addiction, engaging those people with caring professionals and peers who can help them connect with medical professionals and recovery uh, opportunities. We we hear and we know um, that... Um, people who are uh, participating in a syringe exchange program are five times more likely to get into recovery. So um, we actively support this program. We have a telephone message on my telephone, tells people where to call. It's on our website about the, uh, where you can find syringe exchange programs. And so we get calls because it's on our website. It pops up in a Google search uh, so that's one thing we're very active in. Um, increasing public awareness is so important, and it's it's why we dove in and took on this Remove the Risk program that we've been doing at our church for the past four or five weeks to try to raise awareness not only in our congregation but through the use of social media uh, with people across the country and in talking to someone like you, David, who has... The potential to share some of this and raise awareness, so um, that's very important. Um, and so I think those were those are the ones that stand out for me on your list where where we're engaging in those CDC recommended uh, items. Okay. Um, Jason Goodman uh,
0: works for the Metro Drug Coalition and describe that as a kind of a hub and emphasize the importance of that being kind of the first step that somebody is saying, I need help. Where do I go? What do I do?
1: Well, the Metro Drug Coalition has been around Knoxville for 30 years um, and has uh, certainly been one of those agencies that has been at the forefront lots of influence politically, lots of influence locally. Um, It's kind of one of those things, you know, what the old commercial was, if so-and-so says that everybody leans in to listen kind of a thing, um, that's the way it is with Metro Drug Coalition in Knoxville. So um, the importance of a hub uh, like Metro Drug Coalition is that they don't have skin in the game in terms of what treatment program might be best for you they want you to know about all the resources that are out there so they don't they don't support or promote or make money from participating in you know an absence based program versus a a medical medic medication assisted therapy program they really want to be the, the 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 hub as jason said to direct people to the resources that are available in our community. And Jason said that Knoxville is rich with resources. And well, My guess is that there's a lot of communities that are rich with resources and people don't know about them. And so that's another example. Um, now, coalition, that word is really important. Now, Metro Drug Coalition is a, is a not-for-profit entity with that name. But they are a part of uh, bringing people together from all walks of life, all of the players that can help put uh, uh, gather information um, and be a part of the solution, and so it's really important in your community to find out if you're interested in this topic. To find out who who's getting together on a monthly basis to talk about this. Where are uh, where where's the coalition of people who are who are looking to help? solve this problem in your community. And, and here's the secret. Uh, a friend of mine says, what's the secret sauce? Here's the secret sauce. My guess is that the coalition that's that's going on in your community doesn't have a faith partner because of stigma, because those are bad people, because of whatever you want to say. There are some religious organizations that don't want to be a part of a coalition if they hear talk about medicated assisted therapy. That's a no-no. So um, it really is important to have people of faith sitting at this table, and that's been something that we've that has been so important to us, David, because we found that when there's a when there's a voice at the table for the faith community, a lot of people listen to that Contro- a controversial issue like. Serenes Exchange, it was important to have a big Baptist church at the table because that had cred about is this something we ought to talk about or think about or not? And it matters that we're there, David. It really does.
0: Well, you that kind of comes back to um, your statement earlier uh, that this isn't uh, a moral failure uh, that it's a disease but that that so many faith communities consider it a more more moral failure
1: you know I think for most of us most of us go there we go there first you know um, there's something wrong with this person they made bad choices it's on them um, they need to deal with this it's not my problem. Um, you know I just think there's something about human nature that that kind of goes there. You know, we've not dealt well in this country with mental illness. We've not dealt well with some other stigmatizing diseases. Um, and uh, it's real easy to blame the victim. And it really is important to understand that addiction is a condition of the brain that uh, a person cannot just decide to change. Um, they have to have help. They need. Uh, they need a they need a path, and along that path they need help. They need helpers and supporters along along that path to get to get out of that and to get, get to get into recovery. And you know, I, you probably have talked to a lot of people, David, that will tell you that they're in recovery. They don't tell you they're they're done. They don't tell you they're they're finished with it. They tell you that they're in recovery, and that's what Jason and Jessica. And Dr. Lloyd all said, you know, they're, 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 they're right now in a good place and life's good. And they've, they're clean and sober, but they're in recovery. Um, now, one of the things that, that I'd like to mention uh, along this whole process about how we help people in the support services that, that may be necessary, the wraparound services, is an idea about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And I don't know if uh, if you're familiar with ACEs, David, or if your audience is, but um, uh, uh, there are there've been a, a bunch of studies that look at um, a set of uh, adverse childhood experiences, and they can be there's a variety of them: uh, sexual assault, um, abandonment, um, uh, physical physical violence, parents getting a divorce. Um, there's a variety of these, and there's 10 or 15 of these different adverse childhood experiences. And most of us have had some of these. Um, But if a a person in their life um, gets tagged with many of these ACEs, it increases the likelihood that they could fall victim to a drug dependency later in life. So there's a direct connection to these adverse childhood experiences and then the, uh, uh, the proclivity or the, uh, the chance that someone might, if they're exposed to opioids, for example, as a painkiller, that they might end up having a problem with addiction. And so that's part of the therapy and wraparound services is to help people kind of uncover themselves and learn about themselves. Uh, Jessica said um, she had some adverse childhood experiences when she was four years old with some domestic violence in, in the home. And she said at four years old, she probably didn't even know it was, she didn't know what was going on. She didn't have an awareness about that, but, and she didn't remember it because she was four, but she says, you know, that has a, that has a role to play as she is an adult, because she went through that experience as a child. So this is part of the the therapy, part of the learning, part of that um, whole person understanding that needs to go into helping someone you know, through recovery. Well,
0: one of the things you touched on and uh, one of the articles you sent me uh, relates to kind of the politics of this. Uh, and the example that you sent me was the... Uh, case in, in West Virginia, uh, where uh, the legislature uh, is trying to address uh, the issue of wanting to help people, but at the same time uh, finding that uh, there is a proliferation of uh, needles and things in in public places that can harm other people, that can harm innocent people. Um, and, and and that that creates a, a tension uh, from different sides of the political spectrum. Um, and that the concern on one side is is that restrictions, limitations, uh, efforts to kind of be more um, uh, accountable uh, also has the, the adverse effect of closing programs down. Uh, where the other, the other perspective says, but there seems to be a good deal of, of abuse, of lack of accountability, and that we are finding these, 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 these problems of, of dangerous, um, uh, things out in the public, uh, you know, with needles and things out in the public,
1: um, address that a little bit. Sure. So, um. The West Virginia case uh, 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 has been in the news a lot among, I get a lot of articles related to opioid stuff and HIV stuff because that's kind of, I'm, 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 I get those, I get those articles. And so the West Virginia case is interesting to me because um, my understanding is they, they passed a law that um, uh, made it uh, mandatory that, before a community could have a syringe uh, services program, which is what we call them or a harm reduction program, um, that the local government had to OK it. So a local city, local county government would have would have to OK. it. now that sounds it sounds good. We, we want our local governments to be on board. And um, apparently what they had was a state law that, that allowed this. Um, so I want to just talk a little bit about what happened in uh, Tennessee, which I know the most about, and also what happened in Kentucky uh, earlier than Tennessee. So when Tennessee decided to take a look, when the Tennessee legislature decided to take a look at this, they really did want local communities to buy in. They didn't want to pass a law that everybody had to deal with that they didn't know about, and so they put some. Common sense kind of ideas on the table. Number one, this is a public health issue, so let's let our let's let our uh, uh, Tennessee Department of Health decide what the regulations need to be and decide how this should best be approached, instead of it being the legislature. So that was step one. Step two was that the the, the Department of Health said, if you want to do a a syringe services program in your town, then you have to get a, you have to be licensed to do that by the State Department of Health. And one of our requirements is that you get local law enforcement and local medical people on the team to be a part of this effort before you bring it to us so this was a challenge in knoxville and in other communities where at first blush you bring up syringe exchange and and uh, police uh, law enforcement or you know go nuts they'd say this is a terrible idea we're going to have more needles on the streets and so on and so forth well what happened in knoxville is we got our chief of police engaged uh and our uh, sheriff engaged and help them learn the pros and the cons uh, of this. And once they learned the pros and cons, then their minds were changed and they became in favor of of this and have helped to implement this in our local communities. So I don't know a lot of details about West Virginia, but it seemed like maybe they got it backwards. They should have gone to the local communities for buy-in on the front end But the result of this will be that I don't know any detail about programs in West Virginia, but I do understand from the article that there are going to be a lot of programs that will close. uh, And this will only hurt people that are uh, engaged in uh, injection drug use. It will cause them to be desperate. It It will push them to share equipment with other people causing a public health emergency that'll be worse than what they already have uh, and it also will close doors for people who are going to be engaged in a syringe services program. It will close doors linking those people to treatment uh, and other wraparound uh, services so i I, I hate that it, I hate that it's happened that way. You mentioned Kentucky. Uh,
0: what were you going to say about Kentucky? Yeah
1: well when 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 Tennessee got into this started looking at what to do about uh, serene services programs, uh, we uh, everybody said uh, to us that Kentucky is doing this as as, as well as anybody can do it. And uh, Kentucky has a vibrant statewide uh, serene services program that to my knowledge is extremely successful and uh, and you can go to a You can go to the CDC website and search states that have serene services programs, and you will see that that every county in Kentucky is connected with a a serene services program. And they were the model that we used uh, in Tennessee to set up our programs.
0: Well, our time is about up, so I'm going to let you uh, kind of say whatever it is you want us to know as a concluding thing,
1: well, uh, two things I guess, uh, David. One would be that um, there's a lot of stigma around the issue of 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 overdose, drug use. Uh, families don't talk about this; it's a difficult topic. Um, churches don't talk about this, and and Churches have church members who are hurting because of the loss of a loved one or hurting because they have a loved one who's in the throes of addiction. And we need to be able to talk about this and we need to be able to reassure and assure our friends that we love them and that we understand that if they have a son or a daughter that's dealing with addiction, doesn't mean they're a, they're a bad person. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. It means they have a disease that needs treatment. The same way we would say to our neighbor, you have cancer, I sure hope you can get the, the right treatment and get to the right place and the right helpers and the right network to get you the treatment that you need. Those need to be the same kinds of things we say. And, uh, and, and so talk about it. Um, there are great resources, probably in your own community, uh, and if you want help, to, if you're if you're interested in looking at how we put this together at Central Bearden, we're more than happy to have you to do that. And then just closing with this little this little phrase: Remember that that uh, addiction is is a disease, and it's not a moral failure. Well, thank you uh, for being with me. Thank you for the work that
0: you're doing. It's amazing. Uh, it's very helpful. Uh, and so I'm hoping that people will be helped by this interview uh, and all the other things that you're
1: doing. So thank you, Wayne. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you and appreciate your work and and the variety of topics that you're covering and, and trying to get uh, get people to think about some of these things. is very important. Thank you.
0: You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left, Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. And for your support, blessings.